This is the Medici Podcast, episode 28, The End of the Golden Age. say how grateful I am for the kind words from listeners I've been receiving lately. Between work and grad school, I haven't been able to give this podcast as much attention as I would like, so it is great to hear that my efforts are being appreciated. As always, you can support us on Patreon for five bucks a month, and in exchange you'll get bonus episodes on topics related to this period of Italian history. For example, I currently have an episode on food up, and I'm working right now on another bonus episode about what war and military technology was like in Renaissance Italy. Also, I still plan on soon doing reviews of the episodes of the Medici TV series from Netflix. And if the podcast really takes off and I get enough money on Patreon, I am going to put those funds into going to Italy myself and working on one of my dream projects, a biography of the last Medici Grand Duke, Jean Gastone, which would, at least at the time of this recording, be the first such biography in English. I was hoping nobody beats me to it. But in the meantime, of course, your financial support helps me with expenses, such as equipment and research and the like. And as always, go to MedicePodcast.com for genealogies, bibliographies, and more. Last time, we talked about the Medici Bank being in free fall, and Lorenzo himself was well aware of the bank's problems. Once, he wrote to the Signora himself, explaining his last tax report to the government. In making out this report, I shall not follow the same procedure as my father in 1469, because there is a great difference between that time and the present, with the consequence that I have suffered many losses in several of my undertakings, as is well known, not only to your lordships, but to the entire world. We don't know for sure based on Lorenzo's own writings, but an awareness of the growing weakness of the Medici Bank might have driven him to seek other ways to ensure the future of his family. He continued his mother Lucrezia's policy of trying to pull the Medici out of the world of the Florentine elites and into the wider realm of the Italian nobility. In February of 1488, Lorenzo's eldest son, Piero, was wed to Alfazina Orsini. The bride came from a branch of Piero's mother, Clarice's clan, the Orsini, that had settled in Naples a couple of generations ago. Alfasino's father, Roberto, Count of Tagliacozzo, was not only a prominent member of the Neapolitan aristocracy, but was also a personal friend of King Ferrante. Through this marriage, Piero was now linked to the royal court of Naples, and this was in addition to his connections to the Roman nobility through his mother. But as far as Lorenzo was concerned, the greatest legacy he left behind for the family was the one he gave to his younger son, Giovanni. After Pope Sixtus' death, the next pope was Giovanni Battista Cibo, 
a descendant of Greek refugees who had settled in Genoa. He took the name Innocent VIII, perhaps because of his heritage. Innocent was more worried about organizing a new crusade against the Ottomans than grabbing up Italian land for his relatives, so he was much easier for Lorenzo to deal with. Still, Lorenzo made sure to seal the deal by marrying off his daughter, Madalena, to the Pope's much older, gambling-addicted, illegitimate son, Francesco Cibo, as I mentioned before. Poor Madalena paid the price, and Lorenzo got all the rewards. Years after failing to make his brother Giuliano cardinal, Lorenzo finally secured the honor of becoming a cardinal of the Catholic Church for his scholarly second son Giovanni. Lorenzo even considered this the greatest honor his family had ever achieved. Perhaps he even somehow had a gleaming that the future of his family lied not just with the nobility of Italy, but with Holy Mother Church as well. The appointment of Giovanni as a cardinal had a couple of hiccups, however. Giovanni was only 13 years old when he was made a cardinal. This made Giovanni de' Medici the youngest cardinal in the history of the entire church. The whole thing was enough of a potential scandal that Pope Innocent wanted to keep the entire appointment a secret and forbade Giovanni from wearing the robes of office or attending any meetings of the College of Cardinals for at least several years, apparently hoping by then no one would care enough to ask any questions. Like any gushing father, however, Lorenzo just couldn't keep the matter to himself. The Pope was furious. And we do have a letter from Lorenzo where he apologized to the Pope while also trying to shift the blame. As to keeping this affair secret, I should be much distressed if the knowledge of it had been made public by me. But your holiness may rest assured that it was immediately known in Rome, and then divulged by letters to people here, so that everyone came to congratulate me. I can affirm that the news was not published by me, nor did I cause any demonstration of joy to be made. It wasn't all good tidings for the family Medici in those years, however. Calice had become ill with a disease that was likely tuberculosis. On July 30th, 1488, she died. It is true that Lorenzo wasn't as close to her as his own father had been to his mother. But still, Calice's death hardly left him unscathed. Lorenzo himself was so ill that his physician had him go to some mineral baths in the area of Pisa, while Lorenzo was gone and unable to travel. Clarice passed away, and her funeral was held. It seems that being unable to attend his wife's deathbed, or attend her funeral, added to the pain of her loss. Certainly, the words Ladenza wrote to Pope Innocent after Clarice's death carry an authentic weight. The deprivation of such loyal and such sweet company has filled my cup, and has made me so miserable that I can find no peace. We can also believe Lorenzo because in those years his own health had deteriorated. Once he had been a fit and athletic man. As he got older, though, it became agonizingly clear that he had inherited both his mother's eczema and his father and grandfather's gout. This forced Lorenzo, like his mother, to travel to various mineral baths around Tuscany to try to find some relief. But as he aged, his condition got worse. At only the age of 42, 
by the start of the year 1492, Lorenzo had difficulty walking and suffered from constant fevers and pains all over his body. That March, he traveled to the Villa Carregi, which remained one of Lorenzo's favorite spots, even though it was from there that Lorenzo and his father, Piero, were almost ambushed by conspirators. Carregi also happened to be where his father and grandfather went to die. And indeed, Lorenzo knew he was dying. At Carregi, Lorenzo was surrounded by not only his surviving family, but his artistic clients and friends. To Pico della Mirandola, who he met in our episodes about the Renaissance, Lorenzo joked that he wished he would live long enough to see the library Pico was putting together. Also present was a certain friar. According to a very biased account that came down decades later, this friar refused to hear Lorenzo's last confession unless he restored the Republic of Florence. But this is a myth scribbled down for reasons we will get into eventually. In reality, Lorenzo's friend Poliziano remarked in his personal account of Lorenzo's final days that the friar told Lorenzo to remain firm in his faith, whether or not God gave him more life or not. When Lorenzo asked the friar to give him benediction, the friar did so without hesitation. In case you haven't guessed already, the friar's name was Girolamo Savaranola, and we will be hearing a lot more from him. For now, though, here is Poliziano's account of Lorenzo's last moments. When given something to eat and asked how he liked it, he replied, As well as a dying man can like anything. He embraced us all tenderly and humbly asked pardon if during his illness he caused annoyance to anyone. Then disposing himself to receive extreme unction, he commended his soul to God. The gospel containing the passion of the Christ was then read, and he showed that he understood by moving his lips or raising his languid eyes or sometimes moving his fingers. Gazing upon a silver crucifix inlaid with precious stones and kissing it from time to time, he expired. It was the evening of April 8, 1492, when Lorenzo the Magnificent passed away. He had sat on the invisible throne for about 23 years. In a cruel twist of faith, despite his health and his youth, Lorenzo was ten years younger than his sickly, mostly housebound father, when he had died. So, we've spent a lot of time with Lorenzo. Part of the reason why is we have a lot of material about him, ranging from letters and works of fiction he wrote to the writings of people who actually knew him. Another part is that Lorenzo's time as the unofficial Lord of Florence really does represent a huge turning point. Now, I don't want to get into the debate over great person history here, but I think someone like Lorenzo is good proof for the moderate position, that history is certainly shaped by these vast impersonal trends in technological and geographical circumstances. However, it is also sometimes given direction by key people who happen to be in positions of influence at crucial times. Lorenzo is one such person. If the economic and social forces surrounding Florence hadn't drastically reduced the power of the guilds and made the middle class more dependent than ever 
on the wealthy for political access. It's unlikely the Medici or any other family could have controlled the Republic as well as they did. And certainly, Lorenzo's life would have been very different if his father and grandfather hadn't accomplished what they had. But if Lorenzo wasn't as talented a diplomat as he undoubtedly was, or he hadn't made some of the decisions he did, his family would have been forced back to obscurity or likely worse. And Florentine history would have changed. And so would have the history of Italy, and even all of Europe, for reasons that, again, we'll get into over the course of the next season. As for Lorenzo, the human being who once actually lived, it's harder to judge, even though we know so much about him. He lived in a time when it was accepted, even to a degree expected, that people in positions of power in a republic would take a little from the till now and then, and act in ways that would be flat-out illegal for public officials in most countries in the developed world today. Even then, his embezzlement, if it had become widely known, would have been a huge, potentially destructive scandal. We don't have enough information to know if he truly felt he had no choice but to steal from the government. But even if he felt completely justified, it doesn't change the fact that he resorted to extreme and self-serving measures that, as far as we know, his father and grandfather never did. But Lorenzo was also a genuinely generous man, even if that generosity was often expressed in ways that happened to benefit himself and his regime. We can see this in the fact that he did occasionally go above and beyond, like helping to protect Jews from anti-Semitic officials, and in the sincere friendships he formed with the scholars and artists he patroned. For example, he could have written off the controversial and occasionally self-destructive scholar Pico della Mirandola and saved himself some bad press, but he never did. Mary Hollingsworth does criticize Lorenzo for not spending enough on specific artists like his cousins did. But like I noted before, this seems unfair to me. It probably sounds almost perverse to say this in a time when we still revere the Italian masters of the Renaissance, but honestly, from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it was more important and benefited more people that Lorenzo revived the University of Pisa and funded scholarships there than if he had spent the money on a few more statues or paintings. Honestly, I can't help but see Lorenzo as a tragic figure more than anything else. He was born into what was supposed to have been a republic and not a hereditary monarchy. And still from an early age, he was forced into the role of the public face of a shaky political regime. Twice in his life, he experienced almost being captured or even killed by enemies of his family. And politics cost him the life of his brother and any sense of lasting security for himself and his family. No wonder he was at least a little paranoid and distrustful, and no wonder that paranoia and distrust translated into the tyranny over Florence his enemies hated with good reason. After spending several months in Lorenzo's company, I do believe he did have a sincere desire to escape into the life of a country gentleman who could spend his life on scholarly and literary pursuits and farming and gardening. There are examples from his writings and from the observations of the people who knew him I could point to. But to me, one of the most revealing is a single line from one of Lorenzo's religious plays. 
written toward the end of his life, the play The Martyrdom of Saints John and Paul details the legend of two Christian soldiers who served under the first Christian emperor, Constantine I. When the pagan Julian the Apostate came to power, they refused to return to military service and pledge loyalty to him, so Julian had them murdered in secret. There's one line Valenzo gives to an embittered and tired emperor, Constantine, that reads, To rule is wearisome, a bitter feat. People flooded the streets to attend Lorenzo's funeral, and the Signora voted to leave Lorenzo with a flattering and lengthy official epitaph, which concluded, It has seemed good to the Signora and the people of Florence, on the motion of the chief magistrate, to establish a public testimonial of gratitude to the memory of such a man, in order that virtue might not be unhonored among the Florentines and that in days to come other citizens may be incited to serve the commonwealth with might and wisdom. In truth, Lorenzo's legacy left the elites of Florence, the Automati, divided. The Medici had been in power for almost 60 years by the time of Lorenzo's death, and few, if any, would still have any tangible memories of what the Republic was like before Cosimo de' Medici came to power. So some, if not a majority, were satisfied with the status quo, as long as they could get prestigious, if mostly powerless, political offices. Others, however, felt very differently. Despite not having lived at the time, either, they looked back at the Republic before Cosimo with nostalgia. Of course, they didn't worry about the endemic, factional infighting that led to violence and people being exiled for life just for basically being on the wrong side. Indeed, they had rosy views of the republics and democracies of ancient Greece and Rome, too, as well as positive feelings toward the entrenched and ostensibly republican oligarchy that ruled over Venice. What mattered most to them was the rejection of power being concentrated in one family, and Lorenzo's tendency after the Pazzi conspiracy to crack down on supposed conspirators gave solid form to their fears of such a form of government. Also, as we see again and again in history in our own time, nothing gets people invested in politics and viscerally angry at their government like a lasting economic downturn. And the depression that was still going on in Florence at the time of Lorenzo's death was doing exactly that. But the real threat looming by the time Lorenzo was on his deathbed wasn't coming from inside the house, but from the outside. Next time, we'll pull the camera back and look at developments going on in Italy, and even over the Alps itself, and how these developments brought a storm down on the Medici that would make even the Pazzi conspiracy look like a small tiff. As always, thank you for listening, and buona notte.